During my years as an army chaplain, my soldiers called me Padre, and they asked me all kinds of questions about God, the Bible, spirituality, relationships, and a whole bunch of other subjects. They also called me Padre. So welcome to the Dear Padre podcast, where I take questions and I try to answer them with stories. And the story we have for us today is the story of Uriah the Hittite. And the basic question that we're answering today is, who was Uriah the Hittite? Who was he? So we're going to explore him kind of in a long form discourse today, rather than our more succinct episodes. This one's going to go a little long. So if this isn't your cup of tea, you may want to tune into some of the earlier episodes. But I just want to say that I'm going to do a deep dive into the life of Uriah the Hittite uh, for a reason that I'm going to share towards the end of the presentation. And there's a reason, because I feel connected to this guy in a really unique way, and I always have, and I've always thought about his story and thought about my own story. So I hope you can hear some of your own story in the story of Uriah the Hittite, which is what we're all supposed to do with Holy Scripture. Soren Kierkegaard, who lived a long time ago, but was a very wise man and a good Christian thinker, uh, used an element of this story, the part where Nathan the prophet comes to David to confront him over the murder of Uriah the Hittite. And the way he confronts him is with a story. And Soren Kierkegaard, writing many years ago, confronts him with this short story or a play, if you will, uh, a poetic account of a life of a shepherd, a poor shepherd who has one sheep and a very rich man who has many, many sheep. The rich man steals the little beloved lamb of the poor man. Anyway, David hears about this and he goes into a rage and Nathan the prophet then turns it around and says, you are the man. And Soren Kierkegaard, writing many years later, from that event, but many years before us, says we have to find ourselves in the story. We have to read scripture with that constant echo in our head that you are the man. And so as we read the story, we're going to be a lot of different characters in the story of David, the story of Joab, the story of Bathsheba, and the story of Uriah the Hittite. So who was he? Who was this guy? We're going to break his name down. His story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11. The book of 2 Samuel, or 2 Samuel, if you will, is part of the historical books of the Old Testament. Uh, these books are based on earlier books. Often, the, book, the historical books of the Old Testament will refer to other books. The book of Jasher, It'll, the, the writer will occasionally say, is not this written in the book of Jasher? And the reason First and Second Samuel are called Samuel is because the first main character that you meet at the beginning of First Samuel is this character named Samuel. He's the prophet who is given to God at a very early age as a young child and grows up in the temple and becomes the main transition point between the prophets uh, to the to the kings that then rule the the land of Israel. Saul being the first king, 
And David being the second king, Saul and David are not related uh, family-wise. They certainly are part of the same larger community, but they're from different tribes, which are still functioning as political units, even in this time. Occasionally in the life of Saul and David, you'll see different tribes breaking up and fighting each other. And yet uh, Saul and David are from different places. David, as you know, is anointed king at a very young age. He's picked out of all his brothers because God looks at the heart and people look on the outside, Samuel says. But then it takes him a long time to become king. When we meet him in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he is at the pinnacle of his success. I preached a sermon about this uh, in the last two weeks as these uh, texts have come up in our Old Testament readings in the Revised Common Lectionary that a lot of churches in America use. But uh, So I've had to encounter this, and I thought, I've got to do a long-form podcast on the life of Uriah the Hittite. David's at the pinnacle of his success, and one of his men of valor, his, uh, his gibor, if you will, the Hebrew for the mighty men, he has um, several lists of mighty men are given in the Bible. There's 2 Samuel 23 and 1 Chronicles 11. Both have lists of David's mighty warriors. These are men that probably followed him from his early days as an anointed king, but still running from Saul, still trying to make a name for himself, occasionally fighting for the Philistines. And there's this group of men that join him in the cave, in the cave of Adullam, who... Uh, are from all over the place. They're kind of the the, the ne'er-do-wells of the ancient world that have allied behind David, and several of them are extremely loyal to him. All of them are loyal to David and fight with him and fight for him uh, throughout his kingship. And two lists are given. One is of the 37, and there's like 30, 30 in another list, and they're called the 30. And on both lists, uh, given in Samuel and Chronicles, is this man named Uriah the Hittite. In the first list, in Samuel, he is listed last in the list. It's almost like the list goes through all these obscure names. I'll read a few. Ishbaal, the Takamonite, Eleazar ben Dodai, the Aholite, Shama ben Egi, the Hararite. They're all from different places, it seems, or at least uh, different regions. Some of them are listed as being from the tribes of Israel, but many of them are listed as being from places that we have no idea where they're from. Uh, They're lost to history as so many geographic features and all sorts of other things are lost to history. But we have this list of names and Uriah the Hittite shows up last on the list of 30, almost as a punctuation mark at the end of the lesson to remind you because remember, this chapter 23 happens a lot long after uh, chapter 11, to remind you that he is a key figure in the life and story of King David. We have two uh, historical books functioning in the Old Testament, uh, two or sort of two parallel timelines. There's the book of 1 Samuel, then there's 2 Samuel, then there's 1 Kings, and there's 2 Kings. And that takes you all the way to kind of the end of biblical history. The book of 2 Kings ends in chapter 25 with the Babylonian captivity, more or less, or at least the um, sort of the, the ground-shaking events of the Jewish diaspora to, and the exile to Babylon. And that ends 
pretty much history. So you start at the beginning of the era of the kings with Samuel's story, and you end in 586 BC, which is almost, uh, it's around, I don't know, uh, you basically end like 600 years later with the, with the Babylonian captivity. Um, there's another book that runs parallel to these, and that is the book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, which is named, many of these books are named by Jerome, or in Greek, Hieronymus. Uh, that name's familiar to me because that's uh, my youngest son's name, Hieronymus. And the Latin form of Hieronymus, that's the Greek form, the Latin form is Jerome. And Jerome did a lot of translating of the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. And the Latin Vulgate, or the common Latin, became the translation that most people in the early Middle Ages and all the way up into the Renaissance used. And there's a copy of the Vulgate sitting on my shelf right now in witness to old St. Jerome. St. Jerome also put the books of the Bible in pretty much in the order they are today, as opposed to some of the earlier orders they were in. He named a lot of the books. He's the one that names Chronicles. Uh, based, and they're very simplistically named because Chronicles is the chronicle. Chronicle implies some sort of historical order. And it starts at Adam. Remember Adam and Eve? Chronicles starts at Adam and ends with the Babylonian captivity. So you almost have like a whole world history in the book of Chronicles. And numerous events are edited out of Chronicles. Are not edited out. They're just not included. In fact, um, some have seen in that that Chronicles is sort of the filler. If you miss something in all the historical books of Genesis, the story of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, if there's something missing in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel from the story, from an earlier or different book, the chronicler, the person who writes the chronicles, is telling you about them. And his main goal in the story of David is to build up to the building of the temple. He wants you to understand that the temple is a pretty big deal. Whereas First and Second Samuel seem to focus a lot more on the, the life and victories and defeats of King David, the highs and the lows. He kills Goliath in 1 Samuel. He also has, has witnesses the death of his own beloved son, Absalom, in the next couple chapters. It's also where we find the story of Uriah the Hittite. The name Uriah the Hittite um, is a two-part name, like many names in the ancient world. It's a first name, as we would think of it, uh, Uriah which is a very is a very Hebrew is a Hebrew name. It's a extremely Hebrew name. It's used a couple other times. There's actually a priest named Uriah a little bit later in the Bible. And this priest, um, you know, is there named Uriah. It's not a it's not a un, it's not an unusual name at all, but it means very literally the light of Yah, the the flame of Yah, and Yah is a shortened version of Jehovah or Yahweh, which is the name of God that is revealed to Moses in the burning bush. Uh, when he says, who will I tell Pharaoh has sent me? Who will I, who, you know, who, who will I say has sent me when I go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go? And the answer is Yahweh, which is hard to pronounce uh, from reading in the Hebrew and different people pronounce it different ways because we don't really know uh, how that they pronounced it, but Yahweh, Jehovah, kind of is a similar um, spelling, but very different pronunciation in English. 
but the light of Yah, the uh, Ura, the aura almost of Yah, the light of Yah, the flame of Yah. So he's got a very devout Jewish name. Whether he adopted this name, like um, some of us when we move to another country will adopt the name of the country that we move to. Um, I, I studied with a number of Korean American or Americans uh, that had were born in Korea and came here to study. Some of them were still Korean citizens and were here to study. Uh, and some of them had, were uh, naturalized as citizens during that time of their seminary training. And some of them had, had Western names, as we might call it, names that are familiar to Western and Americans like Daniel and, and Jim. And others uh, still would introduce themselves with their name uh, that was more common in Korea. Of course, in an international place like the United States of America, you're going to have a lot of people that have different names and a lot of people that have what we what what some Anglo-Americans might consider to be foreign sounding names. When in fact, if you added up the numbers, there would be a lot of people with this name. Uh, the name that comes to mind for me right now is Lakshmi Singh on NPR. She's a um, journalist and broadcaster on NPR. Her first name, Lakshmi, is a, is a name that many people in America have. Um, and yet, uh, when I first heard it, I think she was the first person I had ever heard named Lakshmi. And yet, um, that probably won't be that strange of a name in the future and uh, certainly isn't to me anymore. Whether Uriah takes on a Jewish name, even though he's from somewhere else, wherever the Hittites are from, we're going to get to that in a minute, or, or that is a name he was given at birth, we don't really know. But it's a very Jewish name. It's a very um, Hebrew name that would have been very normal in the time. The second part of his name, the Hittite, the Hittite. You'll notice in David's list of mighty men, uh, read some more, El-Hanan ben Dodo of Bethlehem. Well, he's a local, Bethlehem. Shema the Harodite. Where are the Harodites from? And then there's Elika the Harodite. Were they brothers? Ira uh, ben Ikesh from Tekoa. Ibiezer from Anathot. So some of them are from the land that we would consider to be Israel. Others are from faraway places. The Hittite um, is an, it really jumps out at us because it reminds us of the Hittites. Um, who are the Hittites? Uh, this, like every question of biblical history, there's a lot of different answers. If you look it up on uh, Wikipedia, you'll see some, some of the scholarship behind uh, who the Hittites were. I've read a couple books about the Hittites. Um, I got one uh, book that is sort of a definitive history of the Hittites. Remember, what we're working from to, to know what the Hittites were, are are the archaeological investigations. We're really not um, talking about documentary history the way we can talk about Roman history or American history, but we're talking about archaeological evidence that tells us a lot about the Hittite civilization. The problem with calling Uriah the Hittite a Hittite is that the Hittites are gone by the time the events in the story happen. Uh, again, we're, we're here um, with Uriah the Hittite in 
2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel 11 takes place right around 1000 BCE or before the Common Era. Uh, when I was growing up, it was called BC, before Christ. And now we say before the Common Era. The Common Era being that era in which the world uh, is introduced to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who uh, his followers really create the calendars that we use today. 1000 BCE takes place in the Iron Age. The Hittite civilization uh, collapses pretty much with the Bronze Age. The Bronze Age happens before the Iron Age. You basically have Stone Age, Bronze Age, and then Iron Age. And this has to do with the kind of weapons and tools that people used. Obviously, the Stone Age, they're using stone implements, stone axes, stone knives, obsidian, things like that, which were very effective, but they were, they were heavy and brittle and not as effective as bronze. Bronze is, a, is about 90% copper and 10% tin alloy, uh, and an alloy that is pretty strong. When you mix those things together, you come up with bronze. It's highly polished. It looks beautiful. Um, the problem with bronze is that it's really hard to get. You have to do a lot of serious mining. There's not a lot of copper in the world. There's a lot more iron. So the Bronze Age is, is categorized by a dominant military class, a ruling elite class who could afford the bronze weapons that, they, that, um, that were hard to make, expensive, and hard to resource. You certainly had a really hard time outfitting an army in bronze. When you get to the Iron Age, the Iron Age, it's a lot easier to mass produce weapons, spears and swords, shields, things like that. And so the mass production in the Iron Age of weapons equalizes the power imbalances that happen in the ancient world to a certain degree. You can field large armies with spears, which can take down a couple heroes who seem to dominate the, the field. The, the switch between the Bronze and Iron Age can be found most famously in the Iliad. Uh, you have bronze armor. The bronze armor of Achilles is detailed all the way down to the inscriptions on his shield. It's a beautiful description of his armor in the, of bronze. But when we get into the, to the Iron Age, that's the time that 2 Samuel 11 and Uriah the Hittite lives in. Uh, the Hittite civilization is over uh, by the time that Uriah is born. So how could he be called the Hittite if in fact the Hittite empire is over? Uh, there's a couple different theories on this and I'm certainly not gonna speak the gospel truth for all time and I encourage you to study it a little more yourself and come to your own conclusions, but I'll share, the, share with you the conclusions I've come to. Uh, what do you have in the Hittite Empire pretty much ends somewhere around 1178 BC. That's pretty precise. So uh, there was certainly decline. But that's the time when the Assyrians come in and finally conquer the Hittite Empire, or I would say the um, Middle Assyrian Empire comes and con con conquers them. They also um, come in conflict with the Egyptian Empire. Um, if you look on the map, you'll see the land of Israel is directly between the Hittite Empire, which is modern-day Turkey, 
or the Anatolian Peninsula, and Egypt, which is to the south of, the, of Israel. I'm going to refer to it, that land as Israel, because that's how Second Samuel refers to the land that's there. Today, uh, we look at that part of the world and we call it Israel or Palestine, and uh, it's sort of a mixture of both, depending on where you're standing. But in those days, it was called Israel um, and, and a number of other names as well. But that's how the, the writer of Second Samuel, whoever he is or she is, how they refer to, uh, to this place. So you have this, the empire of the Hittites ends uh, before Uriah the Hittite is born. But we have archaeological evidence that there were colonies. The Hittite Empire was a colonial power. They were an empire, so they were constantly expanding. They conquered into Iraq. They conquered Egypt. They conquered all over the place. And so they also um, established colonies that outlasted the main empire center, the capital city of Hattusa. Hattusa is in solidly in the middle of the mountains of Anatolia or the mountains of Turkey, modern day Turkey. If you go over to Turkey today and you go to the bank, you will find there's a bank over there named the, uh, the, the I think it's called the, um, the Hittite Bank. Uh, in, in sort of as a, um, I think in Turkish it's Etibank or Hittite Bank because one of the names of the uh, Hittite civilization is the Het, Hettite or Hittite. So depending on how you pronounce it, the inscriptions in the ancient world didn't have a lot of vowels in them. That's why uh, pronunciations are a little off sometimes. The language of Hebrew and many other Canaanite languages and even, uh, I believe, Hittite and others don't have vowels at all or very few vowels. So we're using the main consonants to de decipher what the words were. Most languages, you sort of had to be there to, to figure it all out. Um, so the Hittite Empire ends officially before Uriah the Hittite is born. But there are these southern colonies that are in Syria that he may have been connected to somehow. Whether he is a first-generation immigrant to Israel or if he is a third or second-generation immigrant to the land of Israel, it's hard to know, but he is at the heart of David's army. He is a trusted leader in David's army. And you can imagine the armies of the ancient world uh, are not like armies today at all. The Roman army that um, conquered much of the world uh, was a highly disciplined force with a lot of uniformity to it. The further in time you go back, armies look a lot different. They act a lot different differently. The same basic things happening. Two large groups of men are attacking each other with swords, shields, and spears, certainly, and slings and arrows and all sorts of things, chariots, horses. Um, and yet, in, um, in the, the battles that are described around this time in the land of Israel, they are battles that are described very personally. There is usually one leader who leads his men to victory. You'll see this again and again. Um, in chapter 9 of, um, actually chapter 10 of, uh, of 2 Samuel, the, the events that happen right before 
the story of Uriah and Bathsheba and David. You have this battle described where these mercenaries or allies come to aid the Ammonites. You have two kingdoms that are fighting against David's troops. David is not at this battle. He has sent his henchman or commander or whatever you call him, Joab, who is a wily fox of a man. He is tricky. He has tricked several of his friends and rivals, um, deceived them and killed them. He has risen to the top. He is brutal. He is cruel. He's extremely effective. And he's a really good field commander. He and his brother are out there fighting against these two groups. He's got one, Joab has one army, and the Arameans are attacking him from the north, and the Ammonites are attacking him from the south, which is the worst thing that can ever happen to you in a battle, to be in a pincer movement, to have two fronts. You can see what happened to Germany in World War II. They were fighting the east, Russia, and they were fighting the west, the allies in the west. And so you have two-front war is always bad. It's really hard to win. And Joab is, is surrounded in this way. So he splits his army into two. He sends half of it with his brother, and he takes the other half against the Ammonites and says, well, if you know, one is too strong for me, you come and help me. If, if the other one's too strong for you, I'll come and help you. And they end up defeating the Arameans first, who are the furthest from home. And the Arameans start running, and the Ammonites see the, their allies running away, and they start running away too, and Joab wins the day. This happens right before the, the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah in chapter 10. So war was very personal. Uh, it, it, one man could lead a number of troops to victory. Of course, that one man couldn't lead too many troops to victory because you couldn't see him unless you were sort of nearby him. And so the, the, the power of personality on the battlefield was probably uh, beyond anything we can imagine in modern warfare. Um, we're, we're sort of down at the platoon or company level uh, of fighting because that's all you would know is happening in a battle. And there would be a lot of running and chasing as well. It's every story of the battles of the Old Testament, there's a lot of retreating, running people down, and with chariots and whatnot. So Uriah the Hittite is listed in this, in this elite force of 30 that David has handpicked, probably the guys that were with him in the cave of Adullam when he was first running from Saul. But this Hittite, so, so we, we've established that he is some kind of immigrant to the land of Israel from the Hittite empire or the former Hittite empire. The Hittites were so influential in the ancient world, it's hard to, to underestimate that. They're mentioned numerous times in the Bible. In fact, Abraham buys the cave that he buries his wife Sarah in from a Hittite. Um, they're Hittites all over the ancient Near East, as we like to call this land. Um, and that includes Turkey, Egypt, the land we call Israel and Iraq and, and all those areas. Are, there's Hittites mentioned in, in so many places. Uriah the Hittite's mentioned here as a person that lives in the city of Jerusalem, which is a recently captured city by David. You remember the story where David uh, brings the Ark of the Covenant um, and processes into Jerusalem because he's conquered it. This is sort of the new Jerusalem. It's like David's new capital. He's established uh, for his uh, kingdom, which will then become the capital 
until time ends. The, the story of Jerusalem is happening in the New Testament, in the visions of John and the Revelation. The story of Jerusalem goes on and on and on and on. Uh, and it starts right here in this, in this moment of history. So the Hittite Empire, whether Uriah is a descendant of a Hittite who moved to that area or he came there himself, it's hard to know. But there's a couple other clues in the text. Remember, this text is written by someone probably long after the events who has heard stories, who has several written records of these events and, and oral records, but is also trying to make a theological and a moral point by his stories. I'm using his generically. It doesn't say who wrote these things. Um, but the author is trying to make a point about something about religion, something about God, something about the covenant in almost every verse of this story. And you'll see the way Uriah is described in a couple places. Uh, when we get to, um, so he's got this Hittite legacy. One of the coolest things I found that really kind of prompted me to, to uh, do this podcast was I was, re I was listening to this book on audiobook called the, uh, the Iliad or the war that killed Achilles by Catherine Alexander. Um, it's a fascinating book. If you, if you ever, if you like books, I encourage you to read or listen to this one, but it goes in the story of the Iliad, which is of course that ancient uh, poem and legend by Homer who uh, takes the story of the conquest of Troy and turns it into an epic for a war epic for all time. In fact, it's an anti-war epic, if you will. It's an, a diatribe against war, how foolish war really is. But in this telling, he describes this invasion force of Greeks, Mycenaeans, who are coming across the seas in their hollow boats, as, it, as he says, and they land on the shores of Troy and they conquer Troy. Troy is a fortified city. At the time these events take place, Troy is a part of is part of the Hittite empire. So it's really the Greeks versus the Hittites. In the story, if you read it, it sounds like everybody's Greek because they're all speaking Greek. They're conversing with one another. But we can imagine a lot more uh, linguistic complexity from the time of the story. Uh, the kingdom of Troy is part of the Hittite empire at that time. And the, the region that Troy finds itself in is the Luwian region. The Luwians um, were an Indo-European language family. And so the Luwians are part of the Hittite empire, an extremely intrinsic part of it. The Hittites um, have written records that we have today. Most of the Hittite records, unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at it, are receipts. They are uh, bills and receipts and... Uh, invoices of goods and services traded from place to place. They're not stories like we find in the Old Testament about people and their relationships and their battles as much. So we know, we don't know as much as we'd like to know about these ancient civilizations, but we certainly can tell a lot from these receipts and from a couple of their law codes that you have in the Hittite laws. But the kingdom of Troy was part of the Hittite empire. So you can imagine, these are the people, the, the hero Hector is a, is a Trojan, hit, a warrior. He's the son of Priam, the king. So Uriah the Hittite shares some sort of cultural affinity with these kinds of legends. One of the points that Carolyn Alexander makes in her book is that 
we have the Greek version of of the story of the of the Trojan War. But in fact, there was a Trojan version or a Hittite version of the story as well. That would have been just as epic. It's just nobody wrote it down where it got preserved because it was probably lost in the collapse of the Hittite Empire. And certainly fragments of it remain in the story of the Iliad. She points out several of those fragments. So we can imagine the heroes of the Hittite Empire uh, come down through the tradition that maybe, maybe Uriah the Hittite carried those stories in his, in his own warrior existence because he is a warrior. That is his prime identity in the story as a warrior. And you'll see how that identity as a warrior puts him in a situation that ends up leading to his death. We meet Uriah the Hittite in chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, which I've spoken of often. Uh, the other characters in the story were introduced to much earlier. So we, we want, the author wants us to know that Uriah is a pivotal part of the story. Without him in the story, uh, the whole drama cannot happen. And it is drama indeed. It's drama of the worst kind. It's tragedy. No one really comes out looking very good, except for Uriah the Hittite in the story. He, um, the story, as you know, is introduced with this cryptic phrase, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. For some reason, in this part of the narr narrative, the author of 2 Samuel, and 1 Samuel, by the way, is dropping these one-liners in at the end of, of what we would call the chapters. Sort of as the narrative text, he kind of drops this one. We're going to see one at the end of the story that's dropped as well. But here he drops this one. And David remained at Jerusalem. This king who is at the height of his success, uh, the Philistines have been violently subdued. Remember, the Philistines are sea peoples that have come across the Mediterranean Sea. They're likely of Cretan, Grecian, some sort of uh, connection to those peoples. They have better technology. They are well into the Iron Age. When date we meet David in the beginning of the story of 1 Samuel, he is a shepherd boy. He carries a sling, which is just a leather strap that you can put stones in and hurl them at the enemy, which was a very effective weapon, but often seen as uh, a weapon that a shepherd would use, not a weapon that a war great warrior would use. The only two swords the text tells us that are owned by the Israelites are the swords of Saul and Jonathan, the king and the son of the king. So the military technology at this point is severely limited. Uh, perhaps by David's time, they have a lot more swords. There's certainly more swords mentioned in the stories of David and the wars of David. So we can imagine that, that the technology has improved where they can mass produce these kinds of things. But the war with the Ammonites uh, starts because of a humiliation. It starts in the previous chapter. The Ammonite king dies and his son takes his place. And David, who is somewhat hesitant to fight everyone around him, 
uh, sends emissaries to work out a peace treaty or some sort of understanding with the Ammonites who live to the east of the land of Israel. They live in the present capital of Jordan, which is Ammon, Jordan, which is named after the Ammonite capital or the Ammonite people that live there. The Ammonites are, according to the biblical text, descended from Lot or Lot, as we often call him in English. Lot is the nephew of Abraham, the patriarch, who goes to the city of Sodom. And then when God destroys the city of Sodom, he escapes with his daughters. And the story goes that he gets drunk and his daughters seduce him. And the children that are born from that incestuous union, one of those is named Ammon. And the Ammonites, the descendants of that incestuous union, become the people that live east of the Jordan River in the land of Ammon. Uh, again, we are dealing at the level of mythology when it comes to these stories and my understanding of them. But the fact that they seem to all have a common ancestor uh, way back when is probably more true even then than we know. The languages that all these people spoke, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, would have been very similar. They would have used a very similar alphabet, and many of the words would have been very similar to Hebrew. So there would have been a lot of a lot of ability for peoples from each of those civilizations to intermingle with each other, which is the main concern of the Old Testament is intermarriage with the Canaanites and other tribes and, and uh, the constant wars that result from, from marriages that are contracted. And yet, remember, King David himself is a descendant of Ruth or Ruth, who is a Moabite woman. She is from Moab, which is another uh, group of people that live to the east of the Jordan River who are from that same uh, common origin story of Lot and his daughters. They are considered outside the covenant, and yet every so often, as is in all the biblical narratives, these moments of inbreaking happen where strangers are welcomed in, where people are uh, given refuge in the land of Israel. There's, there's sort of two, I wouldn't say competing narratives in these stories, but one is we have to defend our homeland, no intermarriage, keep, you know, be on guard for people trying to pervert our culture. And then this other story you find in almost every other page of the Old Testament is that strangers are to be welcomed. Immigrants are to be welcomed. If a slave escapes from another part of the world and, and comes to you for refuge, you give them refuge. You do not send them back or sell them back. There's all these stories of, of immigrants coming into this community, um, often through war, often through uh, refugees, uh, because of other wars where they are refugees. But you can see the uh, I believe that the stories of the the mixing of cultures and the traffic between them is probably more uh, more accurate historically because we certainly know that um, from the archaeological record that people traded goods and services all over the ancient world. There's very there's no isolated communities just as there are no really true isolated communities today. So this. Um, the, the, tech, the context of this war with Ammon, uh, David sends Joab 
it seems like chapter 11 sets up this grand story of David staying back while it says all Israel, which meant all the fighting men of Israel, go out to conquer the city of Rabbah in Ammon. But chapter 10, the chapter before it, also has a conflict with the Ammonites. Oh, I forgot to tell you, David sends envoys to the land of the Ammonites to work out some peace with the princes of the Ammonites. And the Ammonites grab the envoys. They're all Jewish men, grab them, seize them, shave off half their beard, cut off their garments at the waist, and they sent them away. So you can imagine these half-naked, half-bearded men staggering back uh, to the city in Jericho. They go to Jericho and David, and they tell David what happened to them, how they were humiliated. And David says, stay in Jericho to your beards grow back and then come home. And this is when David's wrath kindles and he gets extremely angry at the Ammonites. He was trying to do them a good turn by creating peace. And they have done the opposite. They have become odious to David, as, as the NRSV says. And so um, the Ammonites hire the Arameans and that battle between Joab and the Ammonite Aramean alliance happens. So that's chapter 10. They've, they've find, Joab and his brother have finally defeated the Ammonites in the field of battle with their chariots. But now the battle comes home to their home city. They, the Ammonites are holed up in their city. They're defending their city from the besiegers. It seems like this siege has gone on for some time. When we pick up the story in chapter 11, it's spring. Uh, the kings have gone out to battle, and there's David at Jerusalem. The, included in the all of Israel is this man, the subject of this podcast, Uriah the Hittite. He has gone with the army to fight in this battle under the command of Joab. Joab is his commander. He is loyal to Joab. He's loyal to David. He seems like a very brave soldier as we meet him here. Um, of course, the story goes that David wakes up from a nap on his couch in the afternoon, late in the afternoon. So he's been sleeping most of the afternoon, wakes up right before sundown and sees this woman bathing. It says she's very beautiful and and the the text also tells us that she is doing the ritual purifications uh, from from the time of her period. Um, this is well documented in in the Old Testament of the ritual purifications that women had to do at, when it was uh, the time of their menstrual cycle. But perhaps um, many commentators point out that the author is telling you this to say that because it's this time, and many rabbis have said this, that she was especially um, fertile at this time of her cycle. I don't know if that's true medically today. I've been told that's not true necessarily, but the rabbis believe that, that commented on this text. Um, David sees this woman, and he sends someone to inquire about her. Um, it seems like he doesn't recognize her, which is kind of weird. Uriah is one of his 30 great warriors. You would think he would know uh, his warriors' wives. I mean, she lives within eyesight of the palace. So I have been to the 
the citadel, it's called the, the city of David, which is perched on the side of a hill. There's archaeological remains from the time of, from this time, the city of David. And you can imagine David's palace on the side of the hill and all the houses below. It's a pretty deep valley there. And if you look down, you could see that you could see a long way and you could probably see people from a pretty far distance where they're almost unrecognizably small. Um, and you can imagine if that woman is naked, that his eye is particularly drawn to that person, but they might be so far away that you can't distinguish who it is. That's one possibility. The other is I've always imagined it in my head is that he's looking at a neighbor's house like we have neighbor's houses. And how would he not know who this woman was? Um, this is the ambiguities of the text. I kind of tend to take the long view, like it's so far away, he doesn't even know it's Uriah's house. He would think he knew where Uriah lived. Uriah is one of his 30 picked, hand-picked warriors who's been with him for quite some time. Uh, we know later in the story that Uriah only has one wife. He has one wife, and this is his one wife. Um, because of the, the Hebrew or the, the, the prescriptions in the the book of Deuteronomy about how to go to war. One of there's rituals for going to war. One of them is that the priest gets up in front of everyone and and says a few things, much like an army chaplain might do before an operation or a deployment. And then there's this call that goes out: if anybody's scared, go back to your house. There's other ways that they thin out the army, and one of them is if anyone's married a woman in the last year. They're allowed to go home, not so much because they felt like uh, some sentimental loyalty for people to have like at least one good year together because that first year of marriage is so wonderful. From what I have heard from most people that have been married, the first year is usually quite difficult. So it's not for any sentimental reasons that they don't have to go to war. It's because it's not good to go to war childless. When you go to war, you have to bury your feelings of living forever. You have to sort of declare yourself dead before you leave. And knowing you have a child uh, actually helps people go to war rather than hinder them. Um, you'd think it'd be the other way around in many ways, but there is that thought that I will live on in the memories of my children, in the lives of my children, so that I can die as a brave warrior. The embarrassment of David that he would do such a thing as commit adultery with the wife of Uriah Bathsheba while he was at war has led some rabbis to, to, um, to opine through over the centuries that warriors would write a certificate of divorce before they went to war. Now, given the number of marriages that falter and fail during long deployments or even short deployments, uh, you can see why this might be practical, but there is no evidence for this practice being done. It was just a way of getting David off the hook for doing something awful. So Uriah has gone to war with a wife with no children, but it seems like they have been married for longer than a year and have not produced a child as far as we know from the story. Again, the writer's only telling us kind of what he thinks or she thinks we need to know 
to get the point of the story of, of what David's actions are. There are more texts, uh, more writing devoted to the life of David than just about, I'm pretty sure, anybody else in the entire Bible. He dominates and occupies more pages, verses, words um, than anyone else in the Bible for the sheer volume of it. So he is a central character in all these stories and in the history of, of, uh, of what they would call the history of, of the people of God. And so this is, story is all about David. And yet this character Uriah has a really big part to play. Anyway, he, uh, so he, we know from about his marriage, we know about his service to David as a soldier. He has gone to besiege the city you don't know how long a siege is going to take. Siege warfare is brutal in its uh, boredom. It is a, a slow starvation of the people inside the city, but the people outside the city suffer too. Even though they may have access to supplies, food and water in a way that the people inside the city don't, it seems like, it seems like they um, will have pressures of their own to deal with their in hostile territory far from their homes and families and resources, and they must fight uh, constant battles from people coming out of the city to fight, people from the surrounding countryside uh, nipping at their heels, and just being a long way from home is really difficult. So David sees this beautiful woman from his rooftop palace, which I imagine being the highest point in the, the, the city of David or this hillside city, uh, Citadel. He sees her. She's very beautiful. He sends someone to inquire about the woman. So this messenger goes. Apparently this messenger is back in the palace with David, which means all Israel did not go out to this war. There's people around him, likely another male servant here, although it's, the text does not say. He sends this messenger to inquire about the woman, and the messenger comes back with this very nuanced and carefully worded statement about who she is that says, this is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam. So we know that about her. This is her name, Bathsheba. She's referred to Bathsheba numerous times in the book of 2 Samuel and also in later, in the, um, later in the text, in the New Testament even, uh, for reasons we'll disclose in a little bit. But her name is, is quite um, unique. She's the daughter of Eliam. Her name, Bathsheba, the word bath or bat in Hebrew is daughter, like a bat mitzvah uh, for a daughter. Bat is daughter and Sheba is oath. So she's the daughter of the oath, the daughter of the oath. Not sure what that means in the story. That's her name, though. Um, like many Hebrew names, they are a word like Uriah is the light of Yah and Bathsheba is the daughter of the oath, but they probably function like names do today. We have people with English words as names like charity and hope, and I can't think of any more right now. Uh, faith, for sure, is a name that people have that's also a word in English, but most of our names are not in English originally. But we even treat words like hope and faith when we talk about someone as a proper noun, a proper name, and not 
like we think of the concept of faith, we think of a person when we hear about their name. And so we imagine the people back then weren't that much different. So Bathsheba, the daughter of the oath. And we think about the marriage oaths involved in the story and oaths of loyalty to a, as a king to their, his subjects and a warrior to his commander. Uh, her name is quite significant in that way. She's also said she is the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So this messenger brings this three-part message, the daughter of the oath, she, her name is, daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Why is the daughter of Eliam included here? It's not, I have a couple theories on this. The commentators have a couple theories. Uh, one is to point out that even though she is married to a Hittite, even though she's married to a foreigner, a foreigner, even though she's married to someone who isn't really one of us in that particular way, uh, she is the daughter of Eliam, who is one of us, who is not an immigrant, who is from a certain tribe. He is a, a, so you can see this othering of Uriah, even in this text. Um, the messenger is telling King David, she's the daughter of the oath. She's Bathsheba, that's her name. She's the daughter of Eliam. In other words, she's one of us. Be careful. She's not a slave. She's not um, a third wife or a fifth wife or anything like that. She's not single. She's a daughter and she's a wife. Um, this is very, you can almost see the messenger kind of over enunciating these words. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uh, again, there's Uriah's name. This is the first time his name shows up in the story. Uriah the Hittite. Um, it could be that the daughter of Eliam is also mentioned um, because she has recently married, certainly maybe not a year, but um, the fact that they didn't have any children at this point and the fact that the, the code of war that says if you married in the last year, you don't have to go to war, was probably, in my mind, not practiced by the kind of warrior that Uriah the Hittite was. That seems to be uh, for the draftees, for the able-bodied men of the kingdom, who were called up for military service. Uriah, it seems, is on military service 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He is not an amateur. He is a professional soldier. And so the prescription of not being married a year doesn't really apply to him in my mind, if that is the case. We don't really know how long he has been married to Bathsheba. It could be many years for all we know. But the fact that she's described here as being the daughter of Eliam may help identify her to the king. But it does seem that the messenger is saying something very particular, a word of warning to King David. Beware. This is not a woman that you should really be looking at. This is not a woman you should be considering. Uh, men and women have spidey senses that are very aware often of how people are attracted to each other. Did you see the way he looked at her? Boy, did you see the way she was talking to him at that party? Uh, we, we notice these things, and you can imagine this messenger knowing the messenger. The messenger knows his place or her place and is trying to send this message to David. 
So again, it says David sends messengers to get her. And she came to him and he lay with her. Okay, so this is where we get into a real big controversy in the text or in our understanding of the text. The text is very clear of what happened. Messengers are sent. Why more than one? Plural. Why are messengers sent, not one messenger? It's not the same person that reports. It's messengers. Maybe the original messenger went with, but there's multiple people going to her. Why would you need multiple people going on this mission? And this is the crux of the debate that has come up about Bathsheba's role in this story. David sends messengers to get her, to take her. And she came to him. So then there's that element of the messengers go to get her, to seize her, to grab her, to, to take her. And she came to him. So that sort of mitigates that grabbing. She's coming along, perhaps willingly, and he lay with her. That's what it says. Uh, from this, we have to sort of get inside their lives in a way that you cannot do in the ancient world. We don't know, as Mark Morris, the famous historian of the English um, kings and whatnot, always says it's really hard to know about the sex lives of ancient people, and yet that's 99% of the questions I get as a historian. Um, It's really hard to know. But the fact that David is the king, that she is the wife of one of his warriors, it doesn't seem like she has very much choice in this encounter. The fact that messengers are sent to get her, even though she says she came to him and he lay with her, it doesn't seem like this is what we would consider to be an affair between two consenting adults. Now, again, I'm going out on a limb. I'm seeing this through my eyes as a 21st century American white heterosexual male. Um, How other people read this text are going to probably be a little different for me. I have seen Bathsheba depicted as the temptress. And you can see here that in Leonard Cohen's song, Hallelujah, um, as David sees her bathing on the roof. So there's this element in the tradition that Bathsheba is luring David as a temptress and starting this affair by by engaging his visual sense of of lust, whereas um, I think most people today, when they read the story, in light of, as in a post-Me Too world, a, a Me Too movement that has highlighted the, the rampant and unchecked sexual abuse of women, um, and the fact that um, the story of Harvey Weinstein coming out after being protected for years and years and years and years, finally these stories just gush forth from people who have been carrying these stories, thinking they were often often thinking they were alone in their experience. So we can imagine Bathsheba to be more like a woman coming forward in the Me Too movement, telling her story today. That's that side of it certainly resonates with me as I read the story here. The fact that these messengers go to get her. What kind of choice would she have had as a woman in this time 
it's hard to know. Um, the fact that she seems to be well connected to Eliam, who is a important person in the city of Jerusalem, the fact that she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, a chosen and select elite warrior of David's household, kind of puts weight on the fact that she was perhaps somewhat uh, consenting to this union because all she would have had to do was raise the alarm to tell someone what happened um, if she was being taken by force. But the other side of me says, would there have been a way that she could have refused this summons? Is there a way she could have refused this advance from the king who is next in line to God in the great chain of being? Now, David the king um, is subject to the law of God as a king. This is very clear in Jewish tradition that the king is subject to the law, the Torah. And so the king can't do anything that is contradictory to the Torah. Um, You'll find this several times in the story of David, where David tries to go against the law and the law comes back against him. Others remind him of the law. It's very clear the messenger tells David, this is wrong. She is Uriah the Hittite's wife. And yet David, the next thing he does is send messengers to get her. So the, even though I can maybe see a sliver of um, reality in the story that this is somehow an, a, a consensual affair, like we would think of it between two married people today, uh, the preponderance of evidence from this story is that this is in fact a rape. This is in fact a sexual assault of a person with power taking advantage of a person that has very little power in the community and in her life. And so the story becomes even more horrific when we look at it this way, uh, in my mind, that that she would um, be assaulted this way. And then it says, the text says, she was purifying herself after a period. Again, emphasizing the fact that she is at the height of her fertility for getting pregnant. It seems like David knew this, but he doesn't care. Again, the the narrator is telling you, David doesn't care. But we're not here to talk about David so much as Uriah the Hittite. Uriah is out fighting the Ammonites. He's besieging the city. Uh, There are sorties happening all the time. The the Ammonites are coming out of the city to fight. They're going back in the city. Uh, The Israelites are besieging them, trying to probably seal off the city from outside supply lines and things like that. So it's a very dangerous and tedious battle space that Uriah is in. Meanwhile, this is happening back in his very home. The next thing that happens after David lay with her is that she returns to her house. She goes back to her house. She doesn't stay in the palace. Um, This is a secret that David is keeping, and she must keep the secret too. So not only is it horrific sexual assault, horrific rape. It is also a, um, a secret that she must keep. And the Me Too movement and other stories of sexual harassment, sexual assault, always seems to include this element that there, the secret must be kept. You must take this to your grave, the abuser says to the abused person. And so she does. She takes it to her house. And there 
it says, the woman conceived. And she sent and told David. She sends a messenger. I am pregnant. Whether she wrote this, it's hard to know. That would indicate she is literate and as he is. Or maybe it's through a messenger. It's hard to know how this message is sent. Um, because of the letters that are exchanged in the story, and we'll find out about one in a few moments, I tend to think she sends him a written message. And so you can sort of, the drama is heightened by this. Because the message doesn't say Bathsheba is pregnant. It says, I am pregnant. So it's a very personal message that she sends him, a very uh, first-person message, I should say. It's all personal, of course. She sends him this message. And uh, David immediately sends word to Joab. In the story, as it's told, there is no deliberation by David. There is no, uh, there is no sweating it out and calling his counselors, or there is no, in any way, soul anguish that goes on with David in the text. Now, what David went on in David's mind is another story. The next thing David does, it's so quick and immediate. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Here's Uriah back into the story again. First, he's mentioned. This is Uriah the Hittite's wife. Now he is being summoned by the king. So there's all this sending back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. David sees her. He sends for her. They, they get her. She sends him a letter. I'm pregnant. He sends for Uriah the Hittite to Joab. Joab is his trusted wily counts, uh, battlefield commander. He sends him Uriah the Hittite. Joab sends Uriah to David. Uriah comes to him. David asks Joab how the people fared, how the war was going. And in Hebrew, um, it says that when Uriah came to him, David said, how is the shalom of Joab? How is the shalom of the people? How is the shalom of the war? That's literally what he says in Hebrew. Um, uh, it's strange. David says this way, and this is how you would have said it in that day. It's in Hebrew. It's not anything strange in Hebrew. But for me, it really jumped out because the word shalom is the word for peace. How is the peace of Joab? How is the peace of the warriors of the people? How is the peace of the war? It's sort of like a contradiction. It's like David's babbling nonsense here. He's not making any sense to Uriah or anybody else as I read the story. And then um, it seems like Uriah answers him, although it doesn't say. Um, and it's right after he asks him this, David sends to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. Um, again, this is a reference to, to, um, to having relations with his wife. Uh, this is the plan that David has hatched in an instant. Remember, it doesn't say he deliberates, he plans anything. He immediately sends for Uriah as quickly as he can. You can imagine it's a one or two day journey to get to, to Rabbah, maybe shorter. And it's a one or two day journey back, maybe longer or shorter than that. But he has Uriah there within a week or less. And so he can fix this. All he has to do is get Uriah to go home. So Uriah thinks that this child is his, this pregnancy is his. So you can see in the story, David is afraid of something. He's afraid of Uriah. He is afraid of what Uriah will say 
about David. It's strange that he would be afraid of one of his 30 warriors. David is a king, of course. He is an anointed king. He has a lot of power, a huge amount of power, but he doesn't have enough power to get away with this kind of crime, to get away with this kind of sin. Even though he kind of thought he could at the beginning, he knows he won't be able to get away with it. He's afraid of Uriah. The the moral weight in the story shifts from David to Uriah. In the chapters before, David is the moral warrior. He is doing good things. He is righteous. Now the morality of the story shifts to Uriah. Uriah is the one with the integrity. David tells him to go down to the house and wash his feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. It's actually the king's present follows him. You can see these messengers probably probably, in my mind, the same characters who inquired about Bathsheba to begin with and told David, the same people who grabbed her and hauled her to the the palace and brought her to the palace, the same people who have witnessed David doing this, the same people who have witnessed David sending for Uriah and then interviewing, the same people are there delivering this gift to Uriah's house. So more than David knows what's going on. You can imagine how this would have worked, but we can imagine David's servants are quite loyal to him. So he sends the present, but Uriah doesn't do what David wants him to do. It says Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house or the gates of the king's house. There must have been some sort of wall in the citadel Inside the gates is like a business area. The gates of a city were places where where deals were made. It was sort of a courtroom in some ways where legal transactions were done. It was kind of a not a roomy area, but there was room for guards to sleep. And with those guards, the few guards who are left guarding the citadel, Uriah sleeps with these guards. He stays there and doesn't go down to his own house, which is either depending on how you visualize it, quite far from the citadel or quite close. It seems like it's a little bit further. It's kind of a distant view, if you will, because uh, the fact that he stays there in the gates, there's no confusion about him not going down to his house. There's no confusion. It's definitely sure that he is sleeping there and everybody knows it. David's soldiers know it. David's family knows it, that are there in the palace with him. Everybody knows Uriah didn't go down to his house. And they report back to David. They report this back to David. So these messengers, these servants, are in on it in some way. They are co-conspirators with David in this. So Uriah, there alone in the city. His wife is there, um, and yet he is not talking to her. These other servants of David are there, and they are part of the conspiracy against him. Joab is now part of the the conspiracy against him, the commander in the field. And most of all, King David is against him in this conspiracy. Everyone is conspiring against him. This righteous man, Uriah the Hittite, a stranger in a foreign land, adopted by war, doing what he knows is right in his own eyes. And David summons Uriah. 
he says to Uriah. You can imagine him walking up to Uriah there at the gates of his citadel while Uriah's sleeping, or maybe he's awake. It's hard to know. And he says, you've just come from a journey. Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah says back to David, I don't know, is he standing at parade rest? Is he standing at attention? I don't know how these soldiers talk to their commander, David. It's hard to know how the customs and courtesies of those days were. But in modern armies, there is a chain of command and respect given. But Uriah seems to be talking to David almost as if they're equals here. He gives an explanation of why. It's a theological explanation of why he didn't go down to his house. He says the ark and Israel and Judah remain in booths. And it seems like he's referring to the military encampment in that's besieging the city. They have built structures out there that they're sleeping in. Um, some interpret this as tents, but uh, booths is sort of a temporary structure that the um, ark of the covenant and Israel and Judah, which it's strange that he would refer to Israel and Judah. The, the, the kingdoms don't split till later, but it seems like they're already starting to split because the events in the next couple chapters do split the kingdoms of north and south eventually, but they're referred to separately here. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. So he refers to his Lord Joab or his commander Joab. Um, He's pointing and saying, I am a good soldier. I am loyal to my commander and they are camping out in the field. Everyone is sleeping outside. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives? I will not do such a thing. The narrator of our story puts these extremely powerful and preachy words into the mouth of Uriah. He is a soldier who speaks the truth. In his mouth, there is no falsehood or guile. He is saying what he believes very emphatically. He swears really on the life of the king and the soul of the king that what he is doing is the right thing and he will not change from it. So it seems like David just sort of takes this in stride, doesn't argue with him, and uh, and answers him. But this point of um, why Uriah doesn't go down to his house has been often debated in the commentaries on this text. Some would look to see that um, soldiers uh, who consecrated themselves for war abstained from sexual relations. Um, this comes from a story where David and his soldiers are seeking food, from the priest, uh, the priest asks them, "Have are they pure?" David says, "They have not defiled themselves with women," as he says. So, there is some indication that soldiers didn't have sex during military campaigns to maintain their holiness. This is found nowhere in the Old Testament as a prescription for war. The only prescriptions for war that are mentioned in the Hebrew in the Old Testament are prescriptions for. Um, camp latrines. There, there's several, um, there's several toilet um, verses in the Old Testament about when you go out to fight in a battle, you, um, you are to dig latrines outside the camp. Every soldier should carry a shovel with him and dig latrines outside the camp, a designated spot. And then it says, if anyone has a, an emission, and you can interpret that however you want, 
they must go outside the camp for a certain amount of time and then come back into the camp once they're purified. But there's very little, there's nothing really said about marital relations. I think it's assumed that soldiers would be far away from their loved ones so that um, they wouldn't be uh, tempted with that anyway. So Uriah's situation is, is an anomaly. The reason he, he gives for not going down to his house and lying with his wife is his, is his solidarity with the soldiers who are sleeping outside, his solidarity with the Ark of the Covenant and all Israel. That is the reason he gives. He doesn't say, I'm not allowed to from the law or something like that. David has made it very clear he is allowed to. And Uriah knows he is allowed to do this. He, there's no law preventing him from going home, seeing his wife. But his integrity keeps him from doing this. So once David has realized that Uriah didn't go down to his house, David hatches a new plan. And it is a twisted hospitality that he offers him. The twisted hospitality that he offers to Uriah the Hittite is in direct contradiction to the way you are to treat the stranger and alien in your land, according to the Old Testament. Instead of giving him honesty with food and drink, he gives him dishonesty with food and drink. David lures him into this dinner. They He gets him drunk, which how that happened, I don't know. Um, but he's just, the cup never goes empty. They keep refilling it. Again, David's servants are in on this. David is not waiting at the table. He's not a waiter. His servants are waiting on Uriah the Hittite. And he remains in Jerusalem that next day. He gets drunk, and it says he goes out to lie on his couch with the servants in the gate of the city. He doesn't go down to his house. So again, the reasons Uriah the Hittite gave for not going down to his house is that he sleeps with the soldiers in the camp because his soldiers that he's in solidarity with are sleeping out in the open field. This is a very common impulse in warrior culture uh, throughout history. You can see it practiced by many of the great generals and leaders of antiquity and even of the modern era, the sharing of hardship with the people at the bottom of the army or the bottom of the command structure by the people at the top rank. I have numerous stories of my time in the army where leaders came down to our level and stayed with us and were in solidarity with the hardships of being at the bottom rung of a war. You'll see this in the life of George Washington at Valley Forge. You'll see this in the life of many, many, many famous uh, soldiers throughout history. And you'll see it in the life of Uriah the Hittite right here. David, who is very cavalier about this, oh, just go down to your house. Um, I think the truth starts to sink in the second night. Uh, it sinks in so much that David immediately responds with a death sentence for Uriah the Hittite. It is Uriah's integrity as a warrior and his solidarity with the people in the field that writes his death sentence. And he carries his death sentence with his own hand. Just as Bathsheba writes the letter, I am pregnant to David, David writes a letter to Joab, his field commander, and puts it in Uriah's hand. In the letter it says, it's reproduced here in the text, 
set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. David knows how war works. He knows that if all your comrades run away from you in an instant, the enemy will overwhelm you with their force and you will be dead. In a war fought with swords, shields, and spears, there are no lone survivors. When everyone abandons you, that's the end. They're not going to take you captive. They're going to kill you in the melee. So David writes the death sentence. It is a crafty death that he has crafted for Uriah. Uriah, who is a man of integrity, is killed by the most cunning of deceits. This is an elaborate way to kill somebody. Instead of having one of David's servants follow Uriah out into the countryside, jump him, say he got attacked by bandits, there's a million ways to kill somebody in, the, in this time period. Instead, he comes up with this elaborate ruse. He will create a war hero, a dead war hero, Uriah. His name will be carved on the side of the monuments as a war hero for all time and eternity. And no one will know that it was really his own king and commander, and maybe even his own friend who killed him. That's the thing that keeps coming up for me, how close they were. The way Uriah talks to David is not as some peon peasant talking to a giant king. It is like two soldiers talking to each other. There is no uh, terms of address given that Uriah addresses David the king with. There's no groveling or scraping. There's none of that in this exchange. Uriah is a moral equal to David. And in fact, not only a moral equal, a moral superior to David. It's very clear the narrator wants us to know that. And so Joab gets the letter delivered by Uriah's own hand. David knows Uriah so well that he knows he can put a letter with Uriah's death sentence in his hand and Uriah will not open it. Now think about it. How many people could you put a letter in their hand Maybe sealed with wax, but wax, you know, there's ways around that. Could you find someone in your life you could trust with that kind of letter? Hard to say. Uriah is that kind of guy. He's that kind of guy. And before Uriah dies, I want to think a little more about his relationship with his wife. I've already said that they don't have any kids that we know of. He only has one wife. Presumably Bathsheba is Uriah's first wife and only wife. They're living close enough to the palace to be part of the society. Remember, this is a recently conquered city by David. So the fact that Uriah the Hittite already has a house there is pretty significant. She's the wife of a military leader. Um, So she has responsibilities to the community, uh, as you can imagine, a woman today who's married to a general or a colonel would have. Uh, And yet we don't really know much about their relationship. We don't know much about their relationship. We do know that he does not see her when he comes home. His reasons are not because he doesn't want to see his wife, but because he is in solidarity with the soldiers in the field. 
So we know nothing about their relationship here, really. Um, But the only insight we have into their relationship comes from Nathan the prophet, who may have known Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba. Nathan and Bathsheba have a conversation later in the story about another event, um, about a child and the kingship. Um, Nathan and Bathsheba have another um, encounter, and Bathsheba, in fact, names a child after Nathan the prophet. So it seems like they had developed a relationship later that was very cordial. But at this point in the story, we don't know if Nathan had ever met Uriah the Hittite or met Bathsheba before in his life. But it seems as if he does in the way he tells the story. When Nathan finally comes to confront David about what David has done in chapter 12, he tells the story. And the way he describes the Uriah character in the story, he says, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And then he says later, this poor man's lamb was taken by the rich man. The The tender description of Uriah or the the man and his lamb, is the description of Uriah and Bathsheba's relationship, which Nathan describes as extremely tender. In fact, it's very paternal, like a father to his daughter, it says, which may have been a compliment in the ancient world that you were a good husband. I don't know. Um, They seem to probably have been of different ages, um, significantly as many of the marriages of the ancient world were. And we don't know anything about much of that. We know very little about their personal interactions. And yet the one description of their relationship that comes into the story is this extremely tender love that Uriah has for Bathsheba. It doesn't say anything about Bathsheba's relationship with Uriah except for one other point about how she feels about him, which we'll get to in a second. But first... David has to kill Uriah. And so the battle is ongoing. He gets out there to the field and Joab receives the letter. And it says what Joab needs to do. Joab, the mastermind of the military campaign, um, is, is still besieging the city. He puts Uriah in a place where he knew there were valiant warriors, I guess on the walls of the city. But as they go near the walls of the city, the men of the city, these are Ammonite warriors, come out and fight with Joab. It seems like maybe in a different spot, but they're near the wall. And it says some of the servants of David fell. They were killed there in this melee. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. And we know how he dies because Joab sends a message back to David um, of bad news about the fighting. In other words, they lost a lot of guys. And he says, when the king's anger rises, when it gets really hot, you're supposed to tell him, um, and Uriah the Hittite is dead. And that's going to assuage the king's anger. You can imagine this messenger, as all the other messengers, must have wondered, what in the world is going on with this character's? And yet, uh, that's the message. 
And Joab even elaborates on what he thinks David might answer when he hears about all these deaths at the wall of the city of Rabbah. And so um, he even puts these words into the king's mouth. Um, if He says, Joab says, if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbabel? Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? This obscure story is told to try to uh, help the messenger anticipate what David is going to say. This story is a story from the book of Judges where a woman throws an upper millstone, the top of a millstone, the lighter part of the millstone, down from a wall. It kills Abimelech and he dies Abimelech is, of course, the character who doesn't want to be killed by a woman and gets killed by a woman and tells everybody, don't tell anyone that I was killed by a woman. And, of course, that's the thing that everybody knows about him. Not a very noble way to die. Projectile weapons or ranged weapons like bows, arrows, slingshots, stones are not honorable ways of killing people in the biblical literature. And yet it is the very way that David killed Goliath with a ranged weapon of a sling it's the way that um, Uriah seems to be killed here in this story. It is a dishonorable death. Even though he dies in the fighting, he dies from a projectile weapon there at the wall. Um, that's according to Joab's description. So you can see how military, um, military tactics were taught. They were taught with stories stories from their own tradition or perhaps a tradition of others. And these stories were passed down to warn people, don't do stupid things, which most of military training is just that. It's a constant litany of stupid things other people did and don't do these stupid things. And yet Murphy's Law, Murphy's Law of Combat comes in and people do stupid things. And so Joab anticipates David's anger and says, when he says this kind of stuff to you, because it sounds like David has said this kind of stuff before, David is a brilliant tactician. He knows all the stories and how they apply to tactics and military maneuvers. He says, hit him with this punchline, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead too. And this happens. The messenger comes. He says, we drove him back to the gate. The men of Ammon came out to fight us. We drove him back. And archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of your king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Again, Uriah the Hittite's name is mentioned in full. This is the great warrior's name. It's not just Uriah. That's how um, the narrator often calls him Uriah, but the messenger says Uriah the Hittite. There was a lot of Uriahs in that day, but Uriah the Hittite is particularly of notice. So, David sends a letter back to Joab. Don't let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Press your attack on the city and overthrow it and encourage him. David is overjoyed. He has accomplished what he has set out to do, to cover up, to cover up completely this event. David is not so concerned that people know that he impregnated Bathsheba. He is concerned that Uriah will know that he impregnated Bathsheba. 
This is strange that he is so afraid of Uriah. But what little we know of Uriah, his integrity, his reasons for doing what he does, the way he lives his life, you can imagine a person in this condition, in David's condition, would be afraid of someone with this much integrity. And so David breathes a sigh of relief. And then we fast forward to Uriah or Bathsheba hearing the news that her husband is dead. Bathsheba hears the news and it says very formally in the text, very formally, she made lamentation for him. She made lamentation for him. And then when the morning was over, morning, the mor- period of mourning was over, David sent, again, he sends for him, brings her to his house. She becomes his wife and bears him a son. That's how this chapter ends with that kind of period on it. This marriage of David to Bathsheba. David justifies the death of Uriah with this cryptic phrase, which I don't know if it's a quotation um, from some ancient source. It certainly is a quotation I hear have heard soldiers say, for the sword devours now one and now another. In other words, death in war is just a fact of life. The sword takes one, the sword takes another. Uh, in Hebrew, when, when we talk about the sword devouring, it's a very potent word picture or metaphor because the edge of a sword is called the lip of a sword. The literal word in Hebrew is lip. So the, the lip of the sword devours. The sword is like a mouth. It's like a, like a, a ferocious mouth that devours life and limb and all good things. And David comments about the sword. It's very much like the cryptic phrase that Jesus gives in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter, put up your sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And later, Nathan will say in his indictment of of King David, he says, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. And you you have taken his wife to be your wife. And you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. The word, the idea that the sword is not just a weapon of war, but it is a complete metaphor for war. When I hear people tell this story and I hear sermons on it, I never hear stories of how awful war is, that this is primarily a war story. These are the kinds of things that happen in war. War is not just about the battle on the front lines. It is about the battle at home. Things happen in war. Things happen in war that break our heart in the battle space when we lose people we love. And things happen at home when relationships crumble and shatter in a million pieces. The sword devours one now and now another. The sword that you use against your enemy will be used against you. Nathan makes this point very clear to David. It is a point David knows all too well when he, when he finally gets what he wants by killing Uriah. And now David is the hero. He has taken his slain warrior's wife into his own protection, into his own house, 
He's completely covered it up. And since we're talking about Uriah, who is now dead, his memory starts to play a very particular role in the life of the story of David and his descendants. And he does so in in a couple ways. One is that um, Bathsheba is pretty much always referred to as the wife of Uriah. Um, This is kind of strange. Um, Even in the Gospel of Matthew, in the New Testament, in the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1.6 says, Jesse, the father of David, the king. It's a pretty good description. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David became the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. What David did to Uriah is enshrined in New Testament history, in New Testament genealogy. What David did to Uriah is like a message that is broadcast out to the ages. Don't do this. This story will never, ever go away. The sword will not depart from your house. I spoke earlier of that love that David used for, or that Nathan uses to describe the relationship of Uriah to Bathsheba as one of a very paternal love, as a, as a father cares for his daughter, as a shepherd cares for his little lamb. And then this period of mourning that is described, this is the only real description of Bathsheba's feelings for Uriah. And from this text, you can't get a whole lot. It says she made lamentation for him. How she did this, it doesn't say. But there's a set period of mourning for someone who dies, a husband who dies. So we can imagine she mourned for him. But it couldn't have been very long. It could not have been more than one or two or five or six months. Because, the text says, she marries David and bears him a son. The son is born. The son is born after she marries David. So the son is born as if he were David's son. And again, David is not so concerned about the people in the kingdom finding out about this. He was only concerned about Uriah finding out about this. 1 Kings 15 sums up David's life, does a little summary. And it's pretty positive. It says, Because David did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, and turned not aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, save only in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah the Hittite again shows up in 1 Kings as the one indictment on David's life, the thing that doesn't go away. Uriah is the symbol now of of what power and hubris and arrogance and lust does to a person. It sticks with them. It doesn't seem to go away. It stays in the memory of the people. This story of war and homecoming, um, I've seen it played out in so many ways, in so many people's lives. When I came home from Iraq, um, as many of you know, I found out that um, that the woman I had been married to at the time had not been faithful to me subsequent to my return. And the devastation of that was huge. I wrote about it in Death Letter, God, Sex, and War, pretty poignantly. I don't want to revisit it now, 
the feelings I had during that time, but I can say it was really upsetting. It turned my world upside down. And one of the things I realized during that time was that the war that I had so gladly participated in, so enthusiastically embraced as my calling, that war, the Iraq war that I had jumped into with both feet, had consumed my family and my life and my world in a way that I hadn't expected. War has a power to do that. And I experienced that in, the own, in my own upheaval in my marriage in a way that I never expected to see or experience. And I think the story of David and Uriah and Bathsheba and Nathan and all the other characters in the story, Joab, are a witness to what war does, that war consumes like the sword, the lip of the sword devours now one and now another. This is the overarching world of war. It is a war where people are consumed, where people are consumed for all kinds of reasons, where people are betrayed, and also where people show honor and integrity, where people stand up for what's right, like Uriah does. And he will always be a witness to this truth. He is a deeply devoted follower of Yahweh. His name means that. He references the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Promise that God has made with God's people, and also in his integrity with his solidarity with the soldiers, which is something I have gotten to wit- I've seen up close in the lives of soldiers and warriors over the years the solidarity that they have one for another when outside forces come in and try to sway them away. They are loyal to who they love. They are loyal to those people they have pledged to fight with and live with. And that is a story I can see in the life of Uriah the Hittite. So I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into his life. There are certainly more places to go with Uriah the Hittite but I think we'll stop there for now and perhaps return to him someday. But thank you for listening. If you have any other questions for the Dear Padre podcast, I encourage you to contact me through the app, through iTunes, or through uh, email at davidwilliampeters, all one word, at iCloud.com. And we can answer some of your questions about life, relationships, the Bible, history, and the story of our faith. Thanks again for listening, and I wish you well.